service. Hey, everybody. It's your host, Nikki Lynette. Thank you so much for listening to About a Girl. In the coming weeks, we're delivering some of your favorite past episodes, paired with another great show from Double Elvis called Disgraceland. If you're not a listener yet, Disgraceland tells the insane stories of musicians through the lens of true crimes they've committed or have been carried out against them. In addition to stories about other cultural icons, whether they are actors, athletes, authors, or artists. Get ready for some About a Girl and Disgraceland episode pairings featuring Beyonce and Jay-Z, Sharon and Ozzy Osbourne, Carolyn Dennis and Bob Dylan, Valerie Bertinelli and Eddie Van Halen, Betty and Miles Davis, and more. All coming to you right here in the About a Girl feed. And if you want to chat about the show, hit me up on Instagram at Nikki Lynette. That's N-I-K-K-I-L-Y-N-E-T-T-E. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know about Bob Dylan, Robert Zimmerman, Zimmy, Robert Allen, Elston Gunton, Blind Boy Grunt, Lucky Woolbury, Jack Frost, singer, songwriter, and poet, Nobel laureate, reluctant voice of a generation, a shape-shifting, defiantly undefinable, tangled up in myths, preordained American original. But this ain't about him. This is about Susie Rotolo, the captivating vision of romance on the cover of the breakthrough Free Will and Bob Dylan album. Much more than a string on a folk singer's guitar. An artist, activist, and intellectual from whom Dylan absorbed so much. I'm Nikki Lynette, and this story is about a girl. For a man of his stature, he was doing something both completely appropriate and totally unexpected. Bob Dylan, in his early 60s, was writing a book about his life. Work on the book was halting. Inspirations and tribulations, struggles with fame and fans, hopping identities, that was all one thing. He could talk about that in his oblique way. You know, if anyone cared. He especially liked writing about those dusty memories of experiences that only he and maybe a few others shared or had heard about. Things that happened pre-fame. Or during some period, he guessed era was the word they used to describe the years of his life now, 
when he'd disappear altogether from public for a while. Harder, though, as always, was talking about the more intimate parts of his life. He had written songs that could glorify the very real women in his life to the status of Calliope, of Helen of Troy, or could excoriate them with an equal and opposite passion, if not eloquence. But that was all in the comfortingly obscure poetry of song. And anyway, he'd usually deny suggestions of a single, literal inspiration. The characters in these songs bear no relationship to any persons living or dead. Hell, when he was done with this book, if he was done with this book, it would send fans looking for meaning in the shade of the whiteness of every page anyway. He knew that. He could even understand, in a way. He could remember being just a kid and feeling that way about Woody Guthrie. But he could never give those people what they really wanted. Not even if he tried. And he wasn't gonna try. Matter of fact, he'd already decided on some things he wasn't gonna talk about at all, including a second wife and a daughter no one knew about still. Some relationships he couldn't avoid, though. His ex-wife Sarah, of course. That was all public, back before he'd known better. His old girlfriend, Joan Baez, she'd been famous before him and was already a well-known part of his story. But then, he thought, then there was that mysterious young woman, her image full of life and love, frozen forever in time as she clung to his arm so affectionately on the famous cover of his famous second album. An early girlfriend, yes, but so much more. Should he get into all that? It was real personal. He didn't like that. And all these years, she had kept to herself, never out there talking about Bob Dylan, trying to sell out their memories. But to leave her unmentioned in a book about his life and career, well, it would just be a damn lie. As he reached back for his memories of Susie Rotolo, he had no inclination to lie. Didn't want to obfuscate or fall back on the reliable obscurity of wordplay and imagery. Then there she was, pouring crisply from his back pages, the ones he typed on that old portable Olivetti. Writing about Susie was like writing a fresh diary entry, a vision of eroticism from the moment he saw her. She was a work of art. Her smile was electricity itself. He could still feel the spinning sensation in his head 40 years later. He met her in 1961 through her sister, Carla. Next time he saw Carla after that, she asked if he'd like to see Susie again. Yeah, you don't know how much, he told her. It wasn't long before he felt like, outside of music, what else was there besides Susie? While Bob Dylan, or Zimmerman, or whatever he was calling himself on any given day back then, was trying to make a go of it at college in Minnesota, Susie Rotolo, almost two years younger, was already established in Greenwich Village, that bohemian mecca on the lower west side of Manhattan. She stayed first at Waverly Place, at a temporarily vacant apartment of some friends of her sister Carla. Bookstores, record shops, cafes, and live music joints were all within a stone's throw. 
odd jobs came and went. Book of the Month Club office, a puppet maker shop. As long as she was out of her mother's home, things were good. She loved her parents, but childhood had been confusing and chaotic, and it got worse, not better. Mary and Pete Rotolo were full-blooded Italians, first generation, and were communists during a time in which it was very, very bad to be a communist in America. Her father was an artist, trained at Pratt Institute, and he always painted, but mostly worked factory jobs. The real work, the work that mattered to him most, was protecting other workers, organizing unions. They settled in Queens, New York. The family were part of a circle that revolved around their politics. Susie and Carla were what they called red diaper babies, the children of communists, and were close with other kids in that cohort. Susie struggled against her parents' oddly conventional expectations for her. Marxists more than communists. They just believed in a society of fairness and equality, uncorrupted by rampant capitalism. In the Cold War era, any such political beliefs had to be kept quiet, especially during the Red Scare, McCarthyist 1950s. Commies were responsible for every bad thing, from the fight for civil rights to juvenile delinquency and the dawn of rock and roll. Maybe that was why her parents pushed Susie so unexpectedly toward American normalcy, to give her a chance at a life of her own, without their baggage, without having to struggle, to hide. Susie didn't know. She just kept her head down. The girls could hear their neighbor and landlady, Mrs. Schill, shouting to them even as they approached their block. She sounded unusual, distraught. Susie and Carla went to different schools and usually didn't see each other until they were at home. But on this Friday in 1958, they ran into each other at the city bus stop. After the trip, they were walking the three blocks between their stop and home. That's when they heard Mrs. Schill, and then an odd droning noise. Girls, girls, over here, come here. Susie heard a car running and looked over toward her own house, but Mrs. Schill was in the way, and the baffled sisters were inside the Schills before they knew it. Something terrible has happened, the agitated woman was saying over and over. Mrs. Schill had been inside and heard a car horn whining. When she looked out the window, she could see Pete Rotolo slumped over his steering wheel. He was dead. Mrs. Schill called an ambulance and then waited to intercept the girls. Their mother, 47 years old, lost her second husband to a heart attack. Her first had drowned in a boating accident two decades earlier. Mary Rotolo had it rough. Her own father died when she was five. The family was destitute. Life after that was brutal. Now with Susie's father gone, she started drinking. Hard. She would speak meanderingly at Susie about life and death, grappling philosophically with the big questions. Susie realized with a chill that her mother was not really talking to her at all, but out loud to herself. Those times were scary but nothing compared to her fits of rage. Susie was sent to live with her cousin's family on Riverside Drive in Harlem. She was 16 when she graduated high school and started working in Manhattan. Mary didn't exactly hound her to visit on weekends. 
She's as relieved as I am, Susie thought. Mary needed some alone time. But in 1961, Mary decided to make a break for the old country. She had some friends in Rome who would set her up there. Since Susie was still a minor, she would go along. That seemed great to Susie. She really had nothing going at the time and wasn't thinking too far into the future. Mary was seeming more like herself. Italy could be cool. They made a drive together to Boston, where Mary had grown up, to say their goodbyes to some family. On the drive back to New York, where they would board a passenger ship, Susie started to doze off. There was a light rain falling against the windshield. Up ahead, she thought she could see the very same car they were in driving in front of themselves. Yet they looked distant, so small and vulnerable. She woke up. A man's voice was saying urgently, Cut her clothes off. Just cut them off. Susie couldn't see clearly, but she could make out faces wearing masks. Her clothes? She thought about what she was wearing. She'd hate to lose that sweater. Their car had been wrecked in a collision. A woman missed her exit on the Hutchinson River Parkway and decided to just stop her Cadillac and reverse back to the turnoff, cutting across four lanes in the process. Seatbelts were not common in 1961. Mary's knee was crushed. Susie had a lacerated eyelid. They both broke ribs and were concussed. That was the end of the Italy plan, at least for now. How much did that guitar cost? Mary Rotolo asked Bob Dylan. It came out like an accusation. Not much, he said. He knew this was going nowhere good. I know not much, but still something. Double dare, he thought. Almost nothing, he said. Oh, she hated that. Dylan felt like Susie's mom was always trying some new angle to conquer this scruffy intruder, to banish him from her world. One time he told her, I don't think you're being fair to me. She glared at him, like her eyes alone might do the trick. Then she said, do me a favor. Don't think when I'm around. Susie was indifferent to her mother's outright hate for her boyfriend. She doesn't mean it, Susie said to him. But they both knew she did. They were in love. Bobby was magnetic. It wasn't just her. Folks just fell into his orbit. He was sensitive like her. All exposed nerves. But he was also tough, arrogant, and driven to succeed like no one she ever met. Bob Dylan showed up in Greenwich Village at the beginning of 1961 after ditching college. And Susie met him that summer during some day-long folk concert in the city that was broadcast on the radio. They got on right away. He was intense and flirty. She wore his corduroy hat. They went to an after-party together till nearly dawn. After that, they moved toward each other in oscillating circles, eventually falling into sync. Bobby's ego belied a bottomless thirst for information, culture, politics, and music. His antenna was always up, always receiving. 
Yeah, Susie was younger, but she became his guide in everything and everyone New York had to offer. She'd picked up her father's artistic inclinations early, first drawing and then painting. A love of Renaissance art gave way to an interest in modernism. She taught herself, over countless museum visits, what she came to understand as a language of seeing. And she was well-read, avidly taking in Shakespeare, Lord Byron, all the classics since high school. She loved Samuel Beckett, Robert Graves, and the beat poets. Meanwhile, her sister Carla became an assistant for Alan Lomax, who, along with his father John, was one of the premier chroniclers and recorders of American folk and blues music, working for the Library of Congress. They were the first to record Lead Belly and Muddy Waters. Lomax would prove to be an important source of genuine Americana for the young Bob Dylan. Between the two sisters, they knew just about every artist and musician in the city worth a damn. Both were heavily involved in the thriving drama scene plays that were staged anywhere from off-Broadway to coffeehouse basements. Susie discovered playwright Bertolt Brecht at a young age and was fascinated by both his work and his personal story. Brecht had died in 1956, but before that was a Marxist artist who fled Nazi Germany. He eventually settled in the United States, working as a screenwriter before being blacklisted by Joe McCarthy's House Un-American Activities Committee, which was generally uninterested in the finer distinctions between Marxism and communism. After that, Brecht went back to East Berlin, with his reputation damaged and the peak of his career well behind him. Susie was appalled by the censorship rife within both Eastern and Western governments. Her mother spent time volunteering for the American Labor Party, and she would bring Carla and Susie to the office to help stuff envelopes. Susie's leftist leanings were clear, but she shied away from any proper political affiliation. She was a passionate activist, though, even as a young teenager. She and her friends protested in front of Woolworth's stores, telling people on the street about the chain's policy of segregated lunch counters in the South. She volunteered for a group called the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, which organized the first march on Washington in 1958 to protest school segregation. Susie was one of 10,000 young people who marched from the White House to the Lincoln Memorial. This was followed by another march in 1959, then the Freedom Rides and protests in the South, and then the most famous march on Washington in 1963, where Martin Luther King delivered his famous speech. Susie wasn't trying to make Bob Dylan like or believe in the things she liked and believed in. He was just absorbing it from her. Before Susie, Bob just wasn't real political. He aped Woody Guthrie's populist bend, but it was all appearance for him. Like everyone else, Bobby recognized Susie's rare intelligence, and he understood that her sophisticated take on things fit right into the image he was crafting for himself, and it heavily informed his writing. It helped that he was crazy about her. Obsessed, really. They were always together, even at parties, or walking with groups of people. Bobby and Susie would be apart from the group, arm in arm, or leaning in to talk quietly, just them in a corner. They encouraged each other's art. When the folky DIY magazine broadside would print Bobby's original song lyrics, 
they were often accompanied by Susie's line drawings. She smoothed out his naturally caustic edge. He couldn't go to sleep at night without seeing her first. For a while, Bob was still jittery when performing, not yet the confident young man who would stand alone on a huge stage with just an acoustic guitar and harmonica and command the rapt attention of 5,000 people. She would build him up, dote on him, and make sure he had that one extra drink, get him loose, before he could go out and deliver his songs the way he wanted to. And Bobby's songs were only getting better. He was articulating a passion for social justice, taking in and projecting her energy. The death of Emmett Till, the ballad of Donald White, songs of immediacy. When he and Susie eventually moved in together, he'd wake her up in the night to show her new lyrics. Is this right? He'd ask her. Later, he explained, I knew her father and mother were associated with unions and she was into this equality freedom thing long before I was. I checked out the songs with her. Susie's house sitting at Waverly Square came to an end and she divided her time between a kind of folky crash pad where Bobby was at and a room at her mother's new place, an apartment at Sheridan Square where Mary lived with her fiancé Fred. Not great but at least it was also in the village. On the other hand, it gave her mother the opportunity to really get to dislike Bobby. She referred to him as twerp, almost pityingly. Like, look, what can you expect from a little twerp? Bobby didn't care either way. He was amused by their interactions. It was a game, a sort of practice for the oppositional defiance that would soon mark his hostile encounters with the press. When he came to New York, Dylan's image building began. He was as good a storyteller in life as he was in song, starting with his name, of course. No one knew Robert Zimmerman. He talked about his life as an orphan, bouncing around the country on his own as a little kid, or living with a traveling circus, working as a carny, all kinds of wild shit, and in vivid detail. In the village scene, that was no big deal. Be whoever you want to be. But as his inevitable march toward fame began, he drew more scrutiny. People started to hear stories about him that conflicted with other stories. And no one who really gave it any thought believed this guy's last name was Dylan. Ah, Welsh, are you? And fame was coming, to be sure. Bobby was special. Anyone could see it. After a rave review in the New York Times... Columbia Records came calling with a record deal and some real money. Bob got a little place on West 4th Street, and after a little while, Susie moved in. She surprised herself at how not cool she felt about him hiding his real name from her. One day, he dropped his wallet, all its contents spilling out. She picked up his draft card with Robert Allen Zimmerman printed on it. Why didn't you tell me, she asked. She knew that a lot of his act was just that. He was way too Woody Guthrie to actually be just like Woody Guthrie. But his real name? He downplayed it, but the fact was that he didn't know how far he could trust her. Trust anyone with his secrets. Lie enough and you become paranoid about the truth coming out. Tangle web and all. Bobby was pretty open with her after that. But she, in turn, was left with lingering doubts about him. 
more conflicts came into focus for Susie. Everyone knew her potential as an artist. Even Bobby called her the creative one. But he was not only a man of his time, when chauvinism was common, blatant, but he was an especially egocentric personality on top of that. His vision of himself required a woman who was both spectacular enough to appreciate him and who would also mainly tend to him as a reflection of himself. Then there was also just the intensity of their relationship, which was disorienting for two people just 18 and 21. I don't want to get sucked under by Bob Dylan and his fame. I really don't, she wrote to a friend. It sort of scares me. I'm glad and all, but I just have a funny feeling about it. It really changes a person when they become well-known by all and sundry. The vibe in Columbia Records' Manhattan studio was very good. Susie could sense that producer John Hammond was beside himself with the talent he was recording, the ferocity and rawness with which Bob Dylan was knocking out song after song. Each one rarely took him more than a couple of takes. Hammond called in Goddard Lieberson, president of Columbia. Both men praised Dylan over the intercom. That was fine. But the thing Bobby found most encouraging was when he noticed one of the studio custodians, an older black guy, step into the control room, stopping to listen to him perform the Delta Blue Standard, Fixin' to Die. Susie was excited. The big studio, with its huge sound, so unlike the little folk clubs. But she found all the fuss unnerving. The way Hammond and Lieberson gushed, the way everyone catered to Bob. She could feel herself getting smaller. There was nothing she could say, though. It was Bobby's first record. She was genuinely supportive. He was recording some songs he'd written for her. Even on the old standards, he'd alter a line here and there to express his feelings toward her. Between takes, he kept asking her, what do you think? What do you think? Bobby's problem as a young folk singer was that he was manufacturing authenticity So he needed validation from the genuine articles before he could be satisfied that he was doing it right, that it was working. Susie's approval of his lefty pro-union lyrics, the custodian at the studio digging his blues. Columbia sat on his debut album for six months before releasing it. By then, Bobby had moved on from the material and the performances. And the record? Well, it was a flop. Two months after it came out, Bobby and Susie took a road trip with his friend and fellow folk singer Paul Clayton. Clayton had a cabin in Virginia, and that's where they were headed, Susie and Paul up front and Bobby in the back seat, working on songs. The trio went off in search of some old-time blues singers Clayton knew of from his time studying with a folklorist while at college at UVA. As they drove into the Blue Ridge Mountains, they came upon winding dirt roads dotted with shacks, windowless wooden boxes with corrugated tin roofs. When they stopped at the first place, it looked bad enough that the men asked Susie to wait in the car. When she did go into the next place with them, she wondered how bad that first one must have been. It was a nearly pitch dark room with enough space for a small bed and a couple of chairs. When her eyes adjusted, Susie was able to make out a man sitting on the bed, old and withered. 
He was friendly enough, though, and a real deal blues man. They talked about music. Bobby played him a song. You got it, boy. The guy enthused with a creaky voice, coming from between toothless gums. They made their way outside, where more locals had come to listen. This boy's got it. He's got the music in him, the man announced, as he stumped his foot in time while Bob played another song. Satisfied with his own trajectory, Bobby handed over his guitar, and the man played the songs that he knew. Susie could see Bobby's brain at work, recording what he heard and storing it for later use. Back in New York, though, the relationship was growing more volatile. She and Bobby fought, broke up, and got back together. Sometimes he talked about marriage. He even talked about how the ceremony would go. Susie could lose herself in the romance of it, but she knew it was too soon. She was just 18. Her mother and Fred, now her stepfather, were planning a European trip in June of 62. Mary wanted Susie to come with them, to finally have the Italian experience that was headed off by the car accident a little over a year before. Susie didn't want to lose another opportunity, but she didn't want to leave Bobby either. He didn't push her, but clearly wanted her to stay. He thought, correctly, that this was part of her mother's plan to break them up. He got mad at friends who encouraged her to make the trip. She fretted over the decision, but in the end, Mary and Fred paved the way for her, setting everything up. It was made so easy for Susie to go that she just went, like a kid jumping off a high dive for the first time. As her ship sailed from port, she watched him wave goodbye, getting smaller until she could no longer see him. Once outside of Greenwich Village, which may as well have been the inside of Bob Dylan's head, Susie was able to evaluate her situation more clearly. The relationship was too intense. It had to ease up. The fear that she would be subsumed by Bobby's magnetism, his fame, it all nagged at her. She missed him desperately, but she didn't miss the village. Italy was so beautiful. It would take a lifetime to enjoy all of the art on offer there. Almost the moment she arrived in Perugia, in central Italy, where she would study at the university, she got a call from Bobby. Turn around, please come back, he begged her. Bob Dylan's ego was just not equipped for what he could only see as rejection. She was tempted. She wept, but she stayed. Mary and Fred left her in Perugia and moved on with their honeymoon, and she relished her freedom. She found that her creativity, which hit Wayne, opened up again. Bobby would be okay. He was going to be a big star. He'd just written a song called Blowing in the Wind, and it was a masterpiece, landing like an atomic bomb in folk music. He had a record deal and a big-time manager. He wrote her beautiful love letters, and she wrote back. In this way, they kept each other updated with what they were each doing, what they were feeling, and they were honest with each other. Susie read a book about Picasso, a famously magnetic, self-absorbed artist who did what he pleased, while everyone else, especially the women in his life, were on their own. She could identify with Picasso, with Bobby, and with the women, because she was an artist too and wished she could prioritize her work. But that was not for women, 
artist or no. Bob Dylan was a genius. She already knew that. And genius needed nurturing. But that was a job she had never applied for, nor was it really how she thought of her boyfriend, Bobby, the real person. They were just two artists, she and he, and they both needed nurturing. Italy was her chance. And she began receiving something she didn't know she needed, the attention of the Italian men who made it their pastime to chase young foreign women. She cut her hair short and introduced herself as Justine. Two could play at that. She particularly enjoyed the company of a young man called Enzo. It was in Perugia where Susie experienced the terror of the Cuban Missile Crisis that October. It was insane. Most people figured a pretty decent chance of a nuclear holocaust. Bobby wrote her a letter that arrived after the peak of the conflict between the United States and the USSR died down. In it, he expressed his fear they both may well die and that all he wanted at that moment was to be with her. Susie felt the same. It was time to go home. When she arrived in New York, she did not find Bobby. He gotten an offer from the BBC in London to do a TV show in January, but told friends in December that he was leaving right away. I'm going over to find Susie in Italy. When he arrived in Perugia, he did not find Susie. But while there, he wrote two songs about her, Boots of Spanish Leather and Girl from the North Country. In fact, over her long absence, he wrote a number of songs for Susie. I had another recording session, you know, he said in a letter she received in Italy. I sang six more songs. You're in two of them, Bob Dylan's Blues and Down the Highway. He didn't mention some others he wrote. One was called Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. The song was nakedly about her, and it was not flattering. In fact, she's the antagonist. Susie felt a chill everywhere she went in the village, and it wasn't just the winter weather. People decided she had abandoned Bob just when he needed her most. See, Bob had been performing his pained, often bitter songs about her in her absence. While outside of Greenwich Village, no one would recognize the character. Everyone close to home recognized her in the songs right away. At least their close friends knew better. Most had been embarrassed by Bob's self-pitying public broadcast of a psychodrama seemingly of his own making. And it was all the worse because Susie wasn't there to stick up for herself. Nonetheless, Susie and Bob's eventual reunion in New York was a happy one. Their love for each other was real and hadn't let up, despite everything. They continued to share and learn from each other. Patterns are hard to break, though, and the time apart hadn't changed what Bobby wanted from a woman. He found what he was looking for, at least for a little while, in the person of Joan Baez. Joan was an established folk star who, once she heard Bob Dylan, recognized his brilliance and also developed feelings for him. She later admitted, I wanted to take care of him and have him sing. I mean, brush his hair and brush his teeth and get him on stage. I wanted to have as many people hear him as possible. Bob Dylan's Dream Rumors swirled about an affair between them, the two biggest young names in folk music. Joan brought him out on tour with her, singing several of his songs, then introducing him as a surprise guest 
they'd sing together, and then he'd sing some numbers by himself. It was an incredible gesture of generosity and, indeed, real love on her part. Susie still wouldn't believe the rumors. Bobby couldn't love Joan Baez. He couldn't love anybody that big, she told a friend. But it was unclear who she was trying to convince. Bobby finished recording his next record, The Free Will and Bob Dylan. Susie was there for a photo shoot for the album cover. Bobby had the photographer, Don Hunstein, take pictures of them together, first in their apartment and then outside, huddled together in the cold, walking up Jones Street in West Fourth. She went inside to warm up while Hunstein took some more of Bob alone, as he had inside. Those were the ones she figured would be used for the album. Bobby didn't know either way. When The Free Will and Bob Dylan came out in 1963, Susie was immortalized on its cover sleeve as she huddled lovingly with Bobby, like they had so many times in the past, breaking apart from the pack inside their own glow. But the album broke huge, and she was seen around the world as the woman holding up Bob Dylan, soon to be anointed the voice of his generation. He appeared at the famous 1963 March on Washington with Martin Luther King. With 200,000 people looking on, Bob sang Pawn in their game. Peter, Paul, and Mary sang Bob's Blowing in the Wind. Joan Baez sang We Shall Overcome. And then with Bob on his When the Ships Come In. But Susie wasn't there. Ironically, Bobby was a star of a march which had been, in a way, the culmination of work she helped begin years earlier with that first DC march. It could have been a triumphant full circle moment, but the fighting had worn her down. The affair with Joan Baez was too much. When Joan sang Don't Think Twice It's All Right at the Newport Folk Festival, Susie was there to hear her introduce it as a song about a relationship that has gone on too long. Susie moved to a small railroad apartment with her sister Carla on Avenue B. She and Bobby weren't over quite yet. In fact, they were getting on better living apart. But along with his fame came more people, more chaos. Everything private was public. Like Bob, she no longer knew who she could trust. That included him. She became pregnant, and they both agreed to an abortion. Afterwards, she was physically weak, uneasy, confused, and depressed. In March, it finally came undone. With Carla in the next room, they had a monstrous fight that seemed to go on forever. Carla forced to intervene before he would leave. It was the end for Susie, however much he tried to get her to come back. She had to get herself back. And in his roundabout way, Bob tried for years to get her back. She was invited to visit during the recording of his Highway 61 Revisited, which she accepted. He invited her to come on his 1965 tour of England, which she refused. I knew I was not suited for his life, she wrote, when she did finally write her memoir in 2008. I could never be the woman behind the great man. I didn't have the discipline for that kind of sacrifice. They were on different paths now. She had no ill will. Yeah, he fucked up a lot. He even fucked her over. But she fucked him up, too. They were just kids, and he was trying to hold his life together. 
a life that had only been invented a few years before. Bob Dylan had a destiny and a preternatural focus. She understood that. But this isn't about Bob Dylan. This is about Susie Rotolo, a brilliant young woman who lived and breathed art and who nurtured it in others as best she could, who went on to other wild adventures, who went back to Italy, married Enzo, and had a son, who lived an extraordinary life. This is about a girl. About a Girl is produced by Scott Janovitz and executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis. The show was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Scott Janovitz. For sources used in this episode, go to aboutagirlpod.com. Music by Scott Janovitz and Matt Tahaney, with additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. The show is on Instagram at About a Girl Pod, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.